Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So maybe we should have expected this, uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop, as it were, after the recent decision uh, regarding extradition from Meng Wanzhou. Uh, and, and the status of the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael uh, Kovrig, the two Canadians being held arbitrarily detained in China. Uh, that China might escalate the situation. Indeed, they have. The two are now facing official charges of espionage. Uh, let me just play for you. This was uh, the Prime Minister's reaction to that today. Uh, we are, of course, uh, disappointed uh, with the decision uh, and the next step taken by the Chinese uh, in the case of the two Michaels, and we offer uh, all our support and sympathies to uh, the families of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who uh, are obviously uh, living a, a difficult moment today, as they have been for well over a year with the arbitrary detention of two Canadian citizens. Uh, we uh, have continued to express our uh, disappointment uh, with the Chinese decision, with the Chinese uh, detention of these two Canadians. We will continue to advocate uh, for their release, for their return to Canada, uh, while highlighting, of course, uh, that uh, we uh, we have an independent judicial system that is uh, going through its rigorous processes in a way that is separate from uh, political interference. Uh, this is an important issue that we will keep working on, not with uh, just directly with the Chinese government, uh, but uh, alongside our allies and friends around the world who are equally concerned with this arbitrary detention. Over the past five years, Canadians have seen that as a government, we take very, very seriously the situation of Canadians uh, in difficulty uh, overseas. Uh, over the past years, we've had a number of successes in uh, returning Canadians, on liberating Canadians who uh, were in difficulties, and uh, we've continued to focus on that. Obviously, on top of the uh, public positioning that we're always very firm on, there is also plenty of action behind the scenes in uh, very direct and firm ways uh, that has resulted in positive outcomes in the past and uh, continues to be ongoing in these cases and in other cases similar around the world. Right, look, no one's pretending there are any easy answers here, and this is a major foreign policy challenge for this government is navigating all of this. And maybe one of the lessons coming out of this week is that, that perhaps we need to get a lot more serious when it comes to foreign policy. And it's not necessarily a problem that, that begins with this government, but uh, their loss this week in the uh, UN Security Council seat vote might, might underscore some of those issues. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Stephanie Carvin, uh, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, always great to be on the show. Uh, we, we appreciate you joining us here today. So let's talk, first of all, about the two Michaels. And I mean, you know, I think there's been a lot of concern, obviously, in the last few weeks as to this exact sort of thing. So should we be at all surprised by this development? No, I think we were all expecting something like this, trying to very clearly like to make it 
obvious that it's engaging in what you know is tit for tat diplomacy it's trying to you know effectively show look we're punishing you for what it believes are you know political choices when the government is trying to say look we have a legal process that's separate from the system and beijing either doesn't believe that's true or doesn't want to believe that's true or just doesn't understand how that's true and um you know i think that you know there there's a lot of cynicism with regards to um how they view uh you know political influence over the court so um you know we saw this we we've seen this uh story play out before of course in in um 2013 2014 when canada uh took a, an alleged chinese um hacker um you know and arrested them on behalf of the united states for extradition China, you know, took two uh, a husband and wife hostage, and um, that story really didn't play out until the extradition proceedings were over. So, um, yeah, no, I, this is just how they play the game, unfortunately. And so, when the decision came down that allows the Meng Wanzhou trial to effectively go ahead, uh, it was not surprising that China said, "Okay, we're also going to go ahead with a trial against your spies, Canada." You know, and, and you you tweeted something to the effect of, you know, China maybe feeling a little pressured and, and perhaps that, that this is an example of China, China trying to show some, some strength here. So obviously, look, there's some specific issues between Canada and China, but how does this also play in with, with everything China is, is dealing with at the moment? I think there's really two things here that, that are important. And the first is, is China is effectively trying to um, uh, give a deterrence, right? It's trying to tell other countries that, look, if you take action against our citizens against our people, we will take action against your people who are in our country. So there's a little bit of a deterrent there. Um, the second thing, though, is that, you know, I think this is not the way a super power behaves, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's kind of like, like um, you know, there's a British expression, throwing your, your toys out of the pram. Um, or, or, you know, it, it, it's kind of like throwing a bit of a temper tantrum uh, in, in its reaction. And I think it was very stupid. If, if China wants to have good relations with Canada, it never should have taken steps like this. Um, you know, it could have said, okay, you know, it could have said we're outraged, we're upset. There could have been trade sanctions. But, I mean, to actually take two people hostage, put them in conditions that are tantamount to torture, and then uh, leave them there basically uh, as, 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 you know, fairly obvious hostages, then, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's just a a surprising move. Like, if you're in a position of power, you don't necessarily do these things. So, you know, I think what's what's interesting about about these particular cases is that, um, of the the two arrested Canadians, is that, you know, this decision to go ahead with the trial is coming at a time when China's under unprecedented pressure from uh, the international community with the way it engaged in COVID um, in some of its economic policies and the way it engages in those. It hasn't made a lot of friends. Um, And also just kind of, you know, right now, um, if people have been paying attention, it's actually, you know, there's border skirmishes with India. You know, I mean, it's kind of fighting a bunch of different battles right now. And so for them to kind of just keep reacting in this way is, at least for me, it's not any way to run a railroad, but Bill, I guess the point I'll end on is at the end of the day, I think Xi Jinping, the, the, the leader of China, feels he has one audience, and that is the people of China. He doesn't care as much about Canada as he does the perception of legitimacy among his own people. So he always, you know, so, you know it's, it's not surprising the Communist Party wants to look strong, even if some of the steps that they're taking really makes other countries upset, um, or even perhaps suggest that they're, they're acting from a position of weakness rather than strength.
And I mean, the dilemma for Canada is, is not wanting to to encourage this kind of behavior, not wanting to to cave and send a message to China that this is an effective way of getting what you want. On the other hand, I mean, clearly they they showed a willingness to escalate this, and so. You know, we'd, we'd be naive to think that it ends here, that, that perhaps things could, as, as bad as they are now, get even worse for the two Michaels. Right. And I think that's an important thing to consider is that you don't and, and you hit the nail right on the head there is that, you know, we did see a lot of calls 2018, 2019, that Canada should just do what China wants. And, and you know, um, former minister, cabinet minister John Manley said this. Um, we've seen Cretchen era cabinet ministers say this, that, you know, we should just give them what they want. But the, the problem with this is that you're effectively rewarding, like, illegal, if not toxic, behavior. And what happens the next time uh, there's there's some kind of incident between Canada and China? They're just going to take hostages again, right? So it's like it, we're in this mm-hmm. really terrible situation where, you know, um, on the one hand, if we keep going, these two Canadians are going to suffer terribly. Let's be very clear about that. And on the other hand, um, if we give them what they want, it means future Canadians are probably going to suffer terribly. And um, so we can't really do what, uh, you know, we're in just a really terrible position. Um, you know, I've been critical of the government this week with regards to the U.N. Security Council and whether or not we have a foreign policy. But I, I will give them the fact that this is actually a very difficult situation for them to be in. And there's not really a lot of good options. No, and I think, you know, we, we do need to hope that at least at some level, you know, the, the Chinese government is acting rationally. I mean, we get this news out of Australia that, according to the Australian Prime Minister, a sophisticated state-based cyber actor, uh, yeah, and certainly there's some, some, right, some relevant suspicions <laughs> here. And, and look, if indeed China's doing that, that doesn't imply a, a rational approach here. What, what do you make of that? Well, I think with, um, you know... That this is just how they kind of behave, right? Um, and like, you know, under President Xi, we've seen this kind of assertiveness, uh, by China in, in these kinds of ways. And I mean, what is interesting about Australia is they didn't name China, uh, which is why I said the, the kind of sarcastic comments there exactly. about it, you know, rhymes with Schmina. Um, but you know, I, and, and that's an opportunity. That's a diplomatic move on behalf of Australia where they're basically like, look, China, we see you. We see what you're trying to do stop it or we'll we'll name you and if there's one thing china hates it hates being called out on his behavior um it absolutely despises it so um but you know china's also making it very clear that australia who has taken some very strong moves with regards to coordinating um uh, some some international behavior questioning china's behavior with regards to the covid 19 um, pandemic and how China reacted to that and did it actually lead to this worldwide outbreak we're now dealing with, um, th- this is the price, right? China wants to make yeah. clear that there is a price to pay for any kind of behavior it doesn't like. And it, it, it doesn't, nec- you know, it'll, it'll do so announcing it, but it'll also do so in ways that we would associate with illegality and even sometimes criminality in the case of hacking um, and in the case of, of kind of hostage taking in the case of Canada. Um, so th- this is a, a very important thing. I mean, I'll note that um, in, in April, although the report was released in May, the communication security establishment released a report basically saying that um, adversarial states are trying to hack into our companies 
um, to get the intellectual property that would be useful in the COVID-19 pandemic. They also didn't name China, but, you know, they came pretty close to the line. So these are opportunities that states often take to not necessarily name a country, but basically imply, look, we, we see you and we want to change your behavior. So the question is, that's what's true in the cyber realm. Is there steps that we can take in the kind of person-to-person realm in our diplomatic means to try and get China to let our Canadians go. And so what that's going to take is probably a lot more allied pressure. But one of the things that's really holding us back right now is the fact that you have um, the Trump administration just has no interest in this particular case. And unless direct pressure is coming from the president of the United States, you can bet that those two Canadians are going to be there for some time because she otherwise doesn't really care. I mean, there was allegations in the John Bolton book that came out this week that, um, you know, China basically said, hey, we're building these camps for Uyghurs, and Trump approved of it. So, you know, what are the odds that he's going to intervene on on these two Canadians that he probably doesn't even rem- remember, uh, even though the United States had requested uh, this extradition? So, um, you know, it, it, it's just bad news. I wish I, wish I had better news. Um, but other than trying to get our allies to increasingly put pressure on China uh, to demand, at the very least, uh, better access to the two Michaels, to... Um, to let them speak more with their families. Um, I think they've only really had the opportunity once because uh, Michael Kovrig's father is, is in poor condition, um, as well as, you know, just making sure they have proper legal representation. I mean, albeit in a court system that convicts literally 99% of the people that are brought forward. So um, it's, it's just a bad situation, and I wish I had um, a better a, a better kind of prognosis here for now, but so long as the men case is, go- is ongoing, and it could be ongoing for the next five, six, seven years, depending on the number of appeals, uh, these two Michaels are likely to remain hostage. Well, and I mean, it should be noted, too. I mean, if China wants to, to suggest this is a tit-for-tat kind of situation, I mean, Meng Wanzhou, not only does she have, a, a, you know, an array of, uh, you know, high-profile high and, and powerful attorneys, I mean, she's, she's basically free to enjoy the, the pleasures of, of Vancouver, which is, which is a lovely city. I mean, it's just, it's night and day, right? Her situation versus their situation. Exactly. I mean, and she wrote this letter this year about, you know, uh, her conditions and how she's wistful and all these things. And I was just trying to spend her days and thinking about time. And I'm like, give me a break. There was absolutely no recognition of the condition of the two Canadians that are that are basically in in terrible conditions in Chinese prisons. Definitely conditions, and I already said this, but it's worth repeating. Conditions that amount to torture, you know, like that we would never put prisoners in. And, and she's she's doing fine. And so, you know, you're right. It's not tit for tat. It's like tit for tat, tat, tat. Um, you know, they are they they are willing to escalate. Whereas our, the Canadian policy towards China generally has been, look, we'll meet you, but we're not going to escalate the situation. We, you know, it's been a constant mm-hmm. aim for de-escalation. But I, I don't know how you know, it hasn't been that successful this, this far. Uh, certainly there are people on the ground trying to work towards solutions. I don't doubt that for a second, but it, it's going to be very, very difficult so long as uh, Huawei is seen as a flag-waving champion for the state of China, and we happen to have uh, arrested the daughter uh, of the founder as well as uh, the, the chief financial officer of that organization. We'll leave it there. Stephanie, appreciate it as always. Thanks for joining us here today. Hey, thanks for having me on. I wish it was better news. Yes, well, maybe next time, perhaps, hopefully. Stephanie, thanks again. Appreciate it.
Okay. No, you're probably right. All right, Stephanie Carvin, uh, Assistant Professor of um, International Affairs, uh, focusing on national security issues and foreign policy at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Well, as the professionals, uh, the NHL, figure out how to conclude their season, uh, Canada's major junior hockey league, uh, the CHL, which of course includes the WHL and the OHL and the QMJHL, looking ahead to next season. And uh, they released some details this week on kind of where things stand about the upcoming season, and a lot of it's going to be contingent on whether they're able to have some fans in arenas in order to have a full season. So with all of that going on, though, and all the talk about uh, what next season looks like, there's been a lot coming to light about major junior hockey in Canada, both the business model and the culture. And we talked about it a few weeks ago on the business side and the lawsuit that they settled uh, regarding minimum wage and the, the whole question of whether these, these young athletes are employees of these businesses, which is essentially what these teams are. Uh, there's also the conversation now happening around the culture of major junior hockey, and more specifically the question of hazing. And obviously over the years, some disturbing details have come to light about this very question. And maybe we've been lulled into a sense of thinking that this is all stuff from a long time ago, uh, that these issues have long been dealt with. Uh, but this lawsuit that was filed this week uh, suggests that this is not something uh, that, that is from a long time ago, and that uh, hazing and really disturbing examples of hazing may still be a reality, or at least some of this uh, is, is certainly fairly recent. Now, the lawsuit, as uh, Ken Campbell writes, in the hockey news, launched in Toronto on Thursday afternoon against the CHL, the WHL, the OHL, and the QMJHL, brought forth by Daniel Carcillo and Garrett Taylor. The allegations are explosive and disturbing. Well, joining us uh, for more is uh, Ken Campbell, senior writer with The Hockey News, thehockeynews.com. Ken, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, as I say, I think the CHL would rather be talking about, you know, what the upcoming season might look like and, and all mm -hmm. the, the planning they're doing. But we got some really big questions now coming to light, don't we, about the culture of major junior hockey and, and the disturbing details in this lawsuit. I mean, how, how explosive is this, first of all, in your view? Well, in, in my view, if, if these allegations prove to be true, um, and I think we should stress that none of them have, has been proven in a court of law um, mm -hmm. to, this, to this point, uh, but if they do turn out to be true, um, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's seismic. Uh, it's, it's a game changer, I believe. I think that uh, if, um, if even a small number of teams have have participated in, in hazing rituals that resemble anything like what Daniel Carcillo um, uh, set out in his, uh, in his statement of claim. Um, you know, I, I, I believe nothing short of a complete overhaul of junior hockey is in order. I, uh, you know, I, I, for one, if, if these are true, would be pushing for uh, some kind of federal inquiry into uh, the state of the game at the junior level and exactly what's going on, uh, you know, in these dressing rooms and in these organizations at the junior hockey level. Yeah, and, and we can get into some of these allegations, and I mean, just to caution people, some of them are, are, are quite disturbing and graphic. Uh, but there's the question, I guess, of, you know, the timeline here. I mean, Daniel Carcillo, um, I mean, he played junior some years ago. I mean, as you note in your story, though, we had uh, another allegation come forward from a former junior hockey player uh, about something that happened in, in 2016. 
So right. and how, how, how far back does some of this go and, and how recent are, are some of these allegations that we're hearing about? Well, I mean, the, 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 the allegations from Carcillo are, 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 you know, relatively old. They, they, he's, he's alleging this happened, what happened in 2002-2003 when he was a rookie with the Sarnia Sting. Uh, Garrett Taylor was a rookie with the Lethbridge Hurricanes in 2008-2009. And Eric Guest, who um, is a young man who uh, I think he's about 20 years old now, um, he, he earlier this week uh, alleged that he was forced to do cocaine at a at a rookie party um, if, when he was playing for the Kitchener Rangers, but that was that was only four years ago. That was 2016. Um, yeah. So I mean, they 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 don't go back very far if if um, you know if the Eric Guest uh, allegation is to be believed. And and I mean, a lot of this stuff. I mean, you've we've been hearing it for years. Um, maybe not quite this bad. Certainly not quite this bad or this heinous or this depraved. Um, but you know, certainly a lot of times over the edge, inappropriate, um, <laughs> basically, uh, you know, a lot of homoeroticism, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it is troubling. Well, it's interesting because one of the allegations in this lawsuit that Daniel Carcillo talks about uh, is is exactly what Akeem Alou talked about uh, way back when. I think it would have been around 2005 mm-hmm. and, and the whole situation yeah. in Windsor with Steve Downey. You know, right. The rookies would be stripped naked and they would be packed into the bathroom on the bus, like multiple mm-hmm. young kids packed into yep. a bus bathroom naked, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. They, they, that's, that's been known over the years as, as they call it the hot box. Um, and that, that is something that has basically been probably, well, one would hope that it doesn't happen anymore, but at one time was a fairly common rite of passage in junior hockey. Um, a lot of teams did it. A lot of players went through it and, um, in one form or another. Um, so that, but that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's only one. There were, there were several others that, that Marcelo talked about that were, um, if you can believe it, far worse. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I, some of them really do stand out as just really horrific and depraved. Uh, you know, as you write, for example, during showers, rookies would uh, sit in the middle of the mm-hmm. shower room naked. Other players would urinate, spit on them, uh, even yep. you know, spit tobacco on them. Yep. Uh, and as noted in the lawsuit, at least on, on one occasion, uh, head coach of the team walked into the shower room, laughed when he saw what was going on, and walked out. So right. not only a really disturbing kind of hazing ritual, but it sort of speaks to this this notion that this is kind of ingrained in hockey culture. Like people know that this goes on. It's it's accepted. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do we make of that? Well, I think that's the most disturbing part of all of this is that is that it at one time, at the very least, was a was a quite an accepted part of the whole ritual of becoming, um, you know, accepted as a member of, uh, of a team and, and not just in hockey, but in other sports. And you hear about fraternities as well and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, hockey certainly doesn't have exclusive domain over this for sure. Um, but I think that's, the, that's the most, that might be the most troubling part of it is that, you know, I mean, a lot of these kids are leaving home at the age of 16, 17, um, years old, 18 years old. Um, they've, they've lost, you know, their support network is, is, is in another city. Um, you know, they're entrusted, uh, to these junior teams who, who, um, you know, tell the parents that they're going to have their, their child's best interest at heart and are going to take care of them. And then, and then, 
you know, at the very least, you see there's, uh, in some cases, you know, at least allegedly, there's this uh, tacit uh, approval of what's being done. And, and in the worst cases, um, you know, it's been alleged that, that, that uh, the, the, the people who, the very people who are responsible for, for safeguarding these, these, uh, these boys are, are actually taking part in it. Yeah, not just that they're looking the other way, but right. uh, there, there's some right. specific allegations about coaches really being instrumental and in being a part of this this abuse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Garrett Taylor alleges that uh, that um, one of the older players was uh, given the credit card and by uh, a member of management and and was allowed to have a rookie party and you know so you're you're basically putting 18 and 19 year old kids in charge of. 16 and 17 year old kids and uh you know i mean uh, i i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far as to say it's the lord of the flies situation but it certainly is is uh there's certainly some some similarities there well and and i saw there's a photo circulating um regarding that you know as they call it the rookie party where these 16 and 17 year olds are are forced to dress up in women's clothing and then they're forced to consume a lot of alcohol Mm-hmm. Right. So again, as yep. we say, I mean, nothing's been proven in court, but there's there's certainly evidence out there indicating that that this stuff was going on. Right. So I mean, at, at this point, what? I mean, it's it's tricky to draw conclusions when we're talking about a lawsuit. We've got these these um, you know firsthand accounts of this. There's photographic evidence in some cases. So it, it's certainly mm-hmm. compelling in that sense, isn't it? That there's there's some some smoke here, shall we say? Oh yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I. Uh, in fact, spoke to uh, two, uh, have spoken to two of Daniel Carcillo's former teammates with the Sarnia Sting. Uh, one of them was a fellow rookie, and the other one was a, a veteran player who did not participate in the hazing ritual, but was but saw it. And both of them 100% corroborated what uh, what Daniel alleged in the um, in the lawsuit. Uh, they said that you know everything that he said and the way he said it happened absolutely happened so i mean you know and i, and I don't think anybody's going to suggest that they're that, that every organization does this or that right. um you, you know or that that this is running rampant in in junior hockey um but i mean even if a couple of teams are doing it or allowing it to be done or, or tacitly approving of it um that's too many you know i mean it's just too many one would be too many um so you know i mean it does indicate Something of a of a of a cultural um, acknowledgement that you know I mean that, that that the culture is is indeed like this in some places and and it's wrong I mean I think we can all agree and and uh, on that 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 it's patently wrong that, that this kind of stuff goes on right and and uh, you look I mean if I mean we should realize too if if this is going on you know, that there's a culture of it. It's not a case of, you know, just randomly one year, there's a couple of sociopaths on the team who decide on a whim, let's do this, right? The players who are doing it, they know about it because it happened to them. And then, they, you know, yeah, as they progress yeah. through the team, they keep the tradition going. Like, it, it, it gets passed on, right? These things don't just come out of nowhere. Yeah, right. I think that's, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a huge part of it as well, is, is that... Um, you know, I mean, you may not be talking about terrible people here. You may just be talking about people who have been immersed in a certain culture and have got gotten caught up in it and and have had those things done to themselves. So they think it's appropriate to be able to 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 uh, to do them to the next crop of rookies that come in, and and then that's how 
you know, this thing gets perpetuated, right? And it, and it gets carried down. And, and uh, I mean, hazing's been a part of, of hockey and sports forever. And, and you know, I, I would suggest that most of the time it's probably fairly harmless. I mean, I talked to a, a kid, the, the, the veteran kid from Sarnia, and he said the year that he got hazed, I think he had to go up to a girl in school and in the middle of a hallway and propose to her or something like that, like, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, fairly, fairly benign, right? right. Um, you know, so, so I, mean, uh, I mean, it's not happening everywhere. It's not happening all the time. But it, it, it is ingrained. I think that's the, the troubling thing is it is ingrained as part of the culture, part of the rite of passage, if you will, um, that exists. And, 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 you know, I mean, if, if anything good can come out of a lawsuit like this, it, it, it would be that, that that sort of thing comes to an end once and for all. Now, certainly in minor hockey, and I mean, I got a kid who's, who's be going into his second year Bantam. So, you know, all, all, all mm-hmm. along, we've, you know, gone through the respect in sports and, you know, yep. the, the, the zero tolerance approach to all of this stuff. But, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. major junior hockey sort of in, inhabits its own world, doesn't it? It does. It does. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, I mean, as much as they like to say that they're not a business, it is a business. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a high stakes environment uh, with a lot of pressure and, and a lot of, you know, max, masculine toxicity probably as well. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it, you know, I mean, it does, it, it, it is, it's not minor hockey. It's not, uh, you know, drop your kid off at the rink and uh, he has fun for an hour or so and, and then uh, comes off the ice and grabs a French fry and a pop and goes home. Right. Um, it's it's much bigger than that. It's much more um, in the control of very powerful people, and I think that's part of it as well. Is you know a lot of players feel reticent to to come out and say anything because they know that it may affect their future prospects for uh, you know a career. Uh, as a professional player or, or, you know, whatever, or, or, or it may affect their standing with the team and, and that would affect their career as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, there are some mistakes here. You've got kids that are chasing dreams. I mean, uh, the reality is, is that almost none of them make it. Um, but, but when you're in that milieu and you're, you're playing and, and you're in the major junior hockey system, I've talked to lots of kids, and they they all think they're going to be the one that that bucks the, you know that that bucks the odds and and makes it to the NHL. Like, like they all think that, or they wouldn't be there. So you know they're all chasing their dreams, and you know I mean mm-hmm. when you've been chasing your dreams that long and you've been working that hard to do it, and your parents have invested that much money in it and time and resources and emotion, um, you know you're you're probably willing to compromise your principles once in a while to to chase that dream. And, and I guess, too, and I mean, you know, just in closing, we should note this point. I mean, this is not just about these players blowing the whistle and saying this happened and everyone should know about it, right? You know, they're, they're alleging some, you know, some pretty serious trauma that this kind of stuff, and you would think, mm-hmm. I mean, 16, 17-year-olds, it's got to yeah. have an effect. And that, that's that's what this is about to them, isn't it? Oh, one, yeah, one would think that, um, I, I, <laughs> let's put it this way, I, I mean, I don't know how many people listening have read the, the allegations, but... But I, I can't imagine anyone of any age um, enduring that kind of abuse and coming out of it unscathed. Um, it, it would be unfathomable to me that that, that, that would be the case. Um, so, yeah, and, and then you compound it by the fact that, it, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with pretty impressionable young men, in some cases 
really boys. Um, and and they're away from home for the most part too, and their their support network is is hundreds of kilometers away in some cases. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 got a it's a toxic mix, it's, and and it's uh, it's you know I mean it's something that um, I certainly think that uh, it, it, like I said, if true, if these allegations are true, and even a small small number of teams have done this. Uh, then to me that that uh, that suggests that there's nothing nothing short of a complete overhaul of the system is in order in my in my view. But uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, indeed. Well, much more on all of this again. Thehockeynews.com. Ken, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All right, all the best. Uh, that is Ken Campbell, senior writer at the Hockey News, thehockeynews.com, and uh, it's got a really uh, long read on this. Which, yeah, has a lot of very disturbing details. So th- these are things that are allegedly being done to 16- and 17-year-old kids. Right? And look, junior hockey is high stakes. You know, you're playing with the best of the best uh, of that, that age group, right up to 20 years old. Uh, and sure, right? I mean, there's, there's pressure. You got to perform. If you're going to jump in there as a 16- and 17-year-old. You got to prove that you can hang with these older kids. And, right, obviously there's pressure to win. So the idea that, you know, you're going to test the mettle of these young players, you're going to try to bond as, as a team, right, yeah, we, I, I think people get all that. Uh, but th- this kind of hazing, especially where it becomes so disturbingly sexual in nature, I mean, I, I think most people would agree, I would hope, that there's, there should be zero tolerance for anything like that. All right, so as I was talking about uh, just a couple minutes ago, major junior hockey in Canada, uh, certainly even you know the minor league uh, hockey, uh, the AHL, the ECHL, I mean, the CFL, you, you can write a long list uh, of sports teams and organizations that really are dependent on having fans in the stands. I mean, ultimately, the big pro sports leagues are too, uh, but TV contracts can, can go a long way in trying to get past this pandemic. That was interesting. Uh, NASCAR this weekend of the Talladega race, they're going to allow up to 5,000 fans uh, in the stands for that event. And, I mean, of course, the president's going to pack an arena in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which seems a little reckless, I suppose. But, you know, further that question, I think sports leagues want to be careful and want to be responsible. And maybe there's some difference between outdoor events and indoor events. But how can we safely get fans back into the stands? Uh, there's some new research out this week. Uh, that, that certainly, I think, you know, urges or should urge a lot of caution on this question. Uh, this research analyzes uh, CDC research and links an uptick in seasonal flu deaths to U.S. cities that have pro sports teams. That, that certainly this kind of a situation, packing stadiums, packing arenas, can be a vector for disease spread. So I think it's something we need to keep in mind as we try to figure out how this is all going to work. Now, joining us uh, to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Brad Humphreys is a professor of economics at West Virginia University, well-known sports economist, uh, and also uh, editor-in-chief of Contemporary Economic Policy. Brad, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, it's great to be back on your show again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, when it comes to the economics of sports, I mean, so much of that is tied up in sell tickets, get bums in the seats, sell some beer, sell some parking, make some money. So obviously, this is a big, big consideration for for sports, isn't it? 
huge. I mean, every professional sport in North America, except the NFL, is highly dependent on revenues from uh, in-game sources, either ticket sales or concessions or parking, like you've mentioned. Yeah, so, you know, it's hard to imagine that uh, that most professional sports leagues can survive for a long time without generating those revenues from, from in-game sources. And and so it's something that at the same time, I think for the most part, that they want to be responsible and, and be guided by the evidence on this question. So it's it's hopefully something they're going to be careful about recognizing the need to make money and recognizing the need at the same time uh, to, to not be a part of the problem when it comes to public health. So, you know, in terms of what this, this research that you were involved in this week finds, what, what are some of the considerations then that need to be made on this question? Well, yeah, I think that first we we have relatively little evidence about uh, what role attending spectator sport professional sporting events plays in uh, in disease transmission, and so that's one of the reasons we wanted to to do this research is to just see what we could learn about in the past, and um, you know it's we were looking for a, an experiment which would replicate what leagues are facing right now, which is turning games back on after they haven't occurred and that's why we went back and looked at u.s cities who gained a new team uh that didn't have a team in that sport prior to when that new team came in because that's a lot like starting the games back up right and we didn't know what we were going to find at the time but it certainly looks like i mean it's not hard to imagine now that we all have been educated on influenza transmission how this plays such a huge role you're in the arena you're in a hockey game you're cheering, you're high-fiving you're the people next to you, right? You're shouting, you're putting lots of potential virus into the, into the uh, atmosphere around you. And that's, that's just uh, like a, a, a super spreader event in many instances. So when you look back then, and, and obviously, you know, COVID-19 is something new that we're dealing with, but, but flu is something that, that we've had around for a long time. And so we have data then, so you can take the data regarding flu transmission, flu deaths, you can take the data regarding new teams and sort of put that together. What, what, what does it tell us? Yeah, it tells us that, that certainly in the past for the normal seasonal flu that, like you said, has been circulating for thousands of years, uh, it, sports play a role. They play a pretty big role. And we found 20% increases in flu mortality in, uh, in U.S. cities that got new NHL teams. So that's a big, that's a, that's a, that's a big increase. And if you blow that up to what might happen because of COVID-19, which is way more, uh, lethal and way more transmittable, it seems, than the standard seasonal flu, it's, it's sort of frightening what might happen if we would just open things up willy-nilly and bring fans back as if there's no real risk. And, and I mean, as you say, we don't have a lot of data about this particular virus. I mean, you know, this this study speaks to this um, soccer game back on, uh, I think it was February 19th, uh, Atalanta yeah. and Valencia. And, and certainly there's anecdotal evidence suggesting that that particular soccer game, just that one event, really fueled the spread of this virus in, in northern Italy in particular, right? So that, that certainly that event should, right. should be a, a big warning signal, shouldn't it? It absolutely should, and that you know that's one of the things that really encouraged us to go to move forward and, and undertake this research because that's and there's actually a second uh, soccer match in uh, Liverpool that also looks like it played a role in in the spread of the of the flu there that was that was played at about the same time 
as that uh, that match in in Italy. So mm-hmm. you know, it just says we've got. I think Robert says we have got to be very careful about about reopening uh, sporting events with fans in the in the stands. Now, at the same time, too, I mean, we are learning more about the virus and how to protect against the virus. Um, you know, so there's the idea of maybe of, of wearing masks, not having as many people in an arena or stadium, spacing people out, encouraging just clapping over cheering, um, not, not serving beer, you know, trying to find ways of mitigating all of this. I mean, is, is it possible at this point to, to get any sense of how effective some of those measures might be if, if teams want to get people back into the buildings? Yeah, so I just, you know, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. Right. I'm just an economist, and I don't know about these things. But I would guess that there, I mean, so there, there should be some level of distancing and some required mask wearing that would, uh, that would not raise the risk substantially uh, of, of letting people in. I mean, there, there are people getting on airplanes, right? And yeah. Yep. Uh, that's that's a really similar, and not as many people involved, but that's a that's a similar sort of a, a potential vector for for disease transmission. And it's not a hard hard to imagine that leagues could come up with scientifically informed policies that would sort of balance off the public health health uh, um, issues with their need to raise revenues from in game sources. And you know, it wouldn't be. 17,000 people packed into a hockey arena, but right, I'm, I, there, there should be, it seems to me, some, uh, some policy which would allow some fans into venues and, and permit leagues to go ahead. Of course, eventually, Rob, we will get to either a vaccine or herd immunity, and, uh, because, and, and then it'll, it'll, uh, it'll be back to normal, but who knows how long that's going to take. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, too, and I mean, when you go back to what you found, I mean, this is not just about the risk of going to a game and people who buy a ticket, I suppose, can assess that for themselves. But I mean, it's it's about the broader community, right? Because it's not just people who go to games maybe are more likely of getting sick. It's the overall amount of illness in the community, right? So it, it goes well beyond just the people who are choosing to go to these these events. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really important point of, of my research and other research in this area. It's not necessarily that, that people are going to die because they contracted uh, COVID-19 at a game. It's those people go out and go into a nursing home or go and visit their grandparents or come into contact with anybody in an in a at-risk population for this disease. And then those are the people that die. It doesn't even have to be anybody who went to the game. It's just that uh, going to the game increases the transmission. And eventually, as we've seen around the world, it gets into the uh, vulnerable population. That's what happened in Bergamo. Yeah. Right? It was still the old people that died. They didn't go to the football match. But people that went to the football match in, in Milan uh, contracted the virus and then brought it back and spread it in Bergamo. Yeah, some important research, some important considerations. Uh, we'll leave it there. Brad, thanks so much. Make some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Great talking to you, Rob. Have a great Likewise. day. Likewise. All the best. You as well. Brad Humphreys, professor of economics, West Virginia University, well-known sports economist and uh, co-author of this study on professional sporting events and seasonal influenza mortality. So the cities that, that have the sports teams tend to have more flu deaths, just because then these events, through the winter in particular you know, can be vectors for community spread and, and kind of fuel that spread. And so it's, it's a bit of a, a, meant to be a warning here, I think, you know, with regard to COVID-19, which 
I mean, has similarities to the flu, obviously, but is, is certainly more serious, more contagious, and would seem more, more fatal. So it's, you know, and I think the sports leagues are well aware of this. And certainly even, you know, what we learned from that, that uh, football match in, in uh, Italy can serve as a warning that you really got to be careful. And New Zealand's an example, too, where, you know, they went with an eradication strategy. I don't know if they're going to reconsider it after having a, a two or three new cases pop up this week. But they said, look, we're going to get it down to zero. We're going to open everything back up. So you had, you know, tens of thousands of people in attendance at rugby matches in New Zealand last week. So part of the consideration is how much virus spread do you have? And look, in February in Italy, they probably weren't doing all that much testing. It's hard to know. Fortunately, we're in a position where we can do a lot of testing. We get a really good idea uh, of how much virus is out there circulating. So if you got really low numbers, really low positivity rates, that's a good place to start from. And then to recognize, too, okay, so how can we mitigate the risks? Maybe uh, an outdoor game poses different risks than an indoor game. So if the CFL is saying, look, we're going to have a tough time making a go of it without fans in the stands... So what could we do? Could you have 10,000 people in a 30,000-seat stadium wearing masks spread out? You know, I think not, not to equate some of these protests and rallies with sporting events, but, you know, in a way, there's certainly some obvious parallels there. There's a bunch of people together outside, for the most part, wearing masks. You know, if it turns out that those protests don't fuel a lot of spread of the virus, then you can at least take those findings and say, well, okay, maybe... Fans at a football game or fans at a NASCAR race or a soccer game. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.